0: Turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Amen. Thank you, Miss Patty. All right. It's right. It's like, what? The Bible? What? Well, where am I at? <laughs> well, here in this church, we don't put it on the dumb- dumbotron for you. We want you to know where it is in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. That way your fingers have to do the walking through the white pages. And uh, you can find scriptures. Ephesians chapter five. I'm going to have two little messages here, but the first one I want to deliver. See if we can do it in 10 minutes and we move on to my main part of um, my message today. Having just come from Uganda and we did uh, five days of conferences, which means basically eight or so in the morning till four in the afternoon, doing six, seven hours or six, seven teaching sessions a day, break for lunch. And then Q and A sessions. It's a lot of teaching, but the Holy Ghost moves. And one of the things I enjoy as a minister in getting to travel, and teach in other places is you can pick up on what the Spirit of God is saying in different churches. You can pick up on maybe their their ditches. Every church has a ditch. Every region has a cultural thing it's battling. And I won't say you ought to really listen to every itinerant minister because not every itinerant minister is good. But if a really good itinerant minister will probably know more than a lot of Christians because they're able to go into multiple churches and learn so much more because they're here hearing what the Spirit of God is saying to a church that's battling this. And they go minister at a church that's battling that. And then they're ministering in a church that's battling this. And before long, the itinerant minister knows, wow, there's a lot of things to this doctrine, and I never realized people could mess this thing up. So getting to go to Africa... I get to see issues that the African saints are dealing with, and and we go to a lot of different countries in Africa, and they're all battling something different. Furthermore, all the places we go in Africa, the churches are at different levels of development, different stages of development. And so when you get to hop between different churches or different nations, even different continents, you, you minister differently in each church because the church is at a different place. Just like if you were to minister from... Uh, little tots, then you'd minister a little bit different in toddlers, then you'd be able to minister a little bit different in children's church, then Royal Rangers Missionettes, and then it's totally different in the youth group, or at least it should be. And then hopefully our college kids are transitioning to being big people. Sometimes they don't want to, sometimes they want to be middle schoolers again. And hopefully then by your career age folks, they're like really serious and mature. Churches are the same way. You have baby churches that are just getting launched, and God's winking at a lot of goofiness, and the pastor tolerates a lot. And Then you have your seasoned churches that have been established 40 and 50 in 100 years. And so ministering in different churches, you get to see a lot of different perspectives. So what I want to minister this morning, I know our series has been on confession, the doctrine of confession beginning in Exodus and Leviticus. I'm going to pause that because I have two messages. We're going to wrap into one to strike while the iron is hot. This first one concerns marriage. So here's a little 10-minute marriage seminar for you. All right. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now. Verse 32 says, this is a great mystery. By my own personal study, there are 11 mysteries spoken of in the New Testament. The mystery of tongues, um, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of Babylon the Great, the mystery of the seven stars, the mystery of God's will, uh, the mystery that is the resurrection of the dead. Only two mysteries are called great mysteries. One is Christ Jesus Coming in sinful flesh. Excuse me, not sinful flesh because he didn't have sinful flesh, but Christ Jesus coming in the flesh. The Jews believed in a Messiah. They had no idea it would be God. That was the mystery. They knew a Messiah was coming. Messiah the Prince is what Daniel calls him. They knew Messiah, Messiah which simply means one anointed or the anointed one. But the mystery was this Messiah would be God Himself. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's why Isaiah 9's prophecy is so significant. It was revealing the mystery. Yes, there's a Messiah coming, but King David was a Messiah. King Asa was a Messiah. All the kings were called Messiahs because they were anointed ones. The mystery, the great mystery was this Messiah, the Redeemer, would be God Almighty. Nobody could see it. Nobody could wrap their mind around it. Not even the prophets who looked into it could comprehend it. The other great mystery is marriage. Think about the power of that. The two great mysteries of the New Testament. God would be the Redeemer, not some special man. God would be the Redeemer. The other great mystery is a husband and wife. Think about the power of that. Because what I want to briefly do is encourage us in our marriage because our nation mocks marriage. We even have a, a, a damnable TV show called Modern Marriage, Modern Family, because you know the old way is not acceptable anymore to the pagan. Hollywood writer, but we're old school because our God is the ancient of days. It's still one man, born a man, lived a man, stayed as a man, married a woman, born a woman, stayed a woman, married as a woman, in holy matrimony, in the house of God, raising their family. That is the mystery. But why is it such a great mystery? Because it reflects Christ and his relationship with the church. All right. So if that is the case, Christ and the church reflected in the husband and the wife. And, and let me pause and say my doctrine is not that the bride is the church because the bride, according to the revelation, is all saints, past, present and future. That's the city coming down from Jerusalem, the heavenly city. It's, it's the whole bride. But in this case, Christ and the church. We know in Ephesians five wives submit to your husbands, even as the church does to Christ in honor. And then husbands love your wives as Christ does the church. We see this parallel. Well, so then we have this concept of a rapture that's coming, right? We're familiar with that doctrine. So Christ is excited to come be with his church. He's going to present to himself a church not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. He's going to wash it with the water of the word. Hebrews 9.28, you can write it down. We won't turn there. It says that the Lord Jesus will return and appear a second time to those... Who await his return. Those who await his return. So we have something really cool here. We see Jesus eagerly excited to see his bride. And we see the bride, in this case the church, eagerly awaiting the return of her Lord. But this is the great mystery of husband and wife. So now here's where I'm gonna flip this and then convict us. When you and your spouse are apart, because men are called to go off to work, we're not against wives having jobs, of course. We're not against women having careers. But typically speaking, the woman has been the governess, the homemaker, and she is the graces for it. Men don't. We understand that. And the men often go, they go off to work. And there is daily in the normal life a separation between the husband and a wife, just like there is a separation between the Lord and the church. And at the end of every day, there is a, a, a glimmer of the rapture when the husband comes home to be with his wife. So the question is, husbands, here's the challenge. Do you eagerly await your return home? And wives, do you eagerly anticipate your husband's return? Because this is a great mystery. This is how we reflect the nature of the church. Because it's not the case in most marriages. Husbands fall in love with their careers and have an affair with their boss, not sexually, but have an affair because they feel more accepted and more welcomed and more wanted by their boss, more appreciated by their boss than they do their own wife. Or the wife, on the other hand, she may be at home, but she doesn't want her husband to come home because he's a jerk. He's not loved on her throughout the week. He hasn't. He left with ruthless words. The contrary to how Jesus Christ left us. He did not leave us in the morning with ruthless words. He didn't text us throughout the day with ruthless words. No, he loved us throughout the day. And so as the church, we're like, come on, Lord, come on. When when you're coming home, when you're coming home, when you're coming for us, Lord, even now, even so, come quickly, Lord. You can tell your marriage is healthy when the wife says, oh, even so, come home early, honey. Come home early, honey. Come home early. And you can tell your marriage is healthy when you're on the, on the job as a husband. You're like, all right, boss, can I go? Can I go? Cause I want to be home. I'd rather be home but, than here, but I got to be here cause I got to feed home. But if you let me go 15 minutes early, I'll be home in 12. <laughs> <laughs> you won't even miss me. You see this daily separation when the husband goes off to work and maybe mama does too, but they're in anticipation, they're eager anticipation of being back together. That's how you know your marriage reflects Christ and the church. If it doesn't act that way at the end of the day, if you don't have a bit of grudgingness when you depart in the morning because you don't want to be separated, if if that isn't reflected there, your marriage does not reflect Christ and the church as it should or as it can. Thank you, ma'am. I felt like it was pretty good. I saw it when I was in Uganda. We were teaching a a lesson called the rapture-ready marriage the rapture-ready marriage, because in Africa, uh, it's not just Africans, uh, the men are very ruthless to the women. They're very hard, and they make the women do all the work. But then Pastor Stephen Awatch pulled me aside and said, Pastor, if you want to strike it fair, you need to know something about African marriages. I said, what's that? He says, if they need one thing, I said, please tell me what they need so I can help. He said, they need deliverance. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it's not just the men that are ruthless, it is the women that can be ruthless. And I have seen videos of women beating their husband in the streets of Africa. Now, this isn't every marriage. We have domestic violence here, too. But we were teaching eschatology. It took a two-day seminar with the spirit of eschatology upon us to be able to see the rapture reflected in a marriage. But what we wanted to do was to encourage the husbands to love their wives and the wives to love their husbands. Because without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Wouldn't it be a shame, and I'm not saying this is doctrine, but it feels pretty good in the moment, that you mistreat your spouse, you might not answer the call of God. Because if your marriage doesn't reflect Christ in the church, what makes you think you want Christ in the church? So this is a great mystery that I can't wait to come home. I can't, she can't wait for me to return. But many a wife, I've even counseled you in this church. Your heart has been, I just wish he'd find another job and be gone longer. Amen. And many a man says, "I just, why do you work 60, 70, 90 hours a week? Because I'm more appreciated there than I am at home. That's not Christ in the church. That's carnality and sinful, but we can change that. And I, I am thankful that at this stage in my life, 50, we've been married 15 years, that when I go overseas now, and this has been the first trip since COVID, uh, and then a year prior to that, so first time in four years I've got to do missions, that the greatest price I pay is not money. Money's easy for me now. It's being apart from my family. And this, this current trip, my greatest fear is that I would unbearably miss my kids and my family. Mom and I have been apart many times in 15 years of ministry, and I've grown to grace for that, but I was afraid I would miss my kids. There was a grace to not miss them like I thought I would. But the anticipation, as soon as that car turns around and we start going from Kenya back closer to the airport, oh, you put a clout down. I'll be home in 100 hours. (laughs) I'll be home in 80 hours. Oh, only 27 hours of airplanes left. Oh, man, this is the closest I've been in two weeks to being home. And, and what I love about my wife, we miss you, honey. Can't wait for you to come home. We miss you, honey. And there's a blessing in having a wife at home who awaits your return but can hold down the fort like Jesus told the church, occupy yes. till I come. Yes. Do your job. Hold down the fort till I come. So the blessing for me with my wife is that when I leave, I don't have to worry about what goes on at home. She, I don't have to worry. She's going to wake up at 10 a.m., 12 a.m.? 12 p.m. I know she's going to be up at 5:30, 6 o'clock because that's what she does when I'm home, and my wife keeps me qualified for ministry. Amen. Amen. My if <laughs> I would be horrible for me to work hard and my wife be the the lamo. It'd be horrible if she worked hard and I was the lamo. But when we deal with marriage, it should reflect Christ in the church, and my wife keeps me qualified for ministry because if she spun out of orbit, I'd have to sit down. Amen. So, you single people, we don't hasten into this. Amen. We don't hasten into this. Pastor Brett was just sharing with us. He's our missionary to Uganda. He's been there. They, he and his wife and the kids have been there ten years. Not Emma. She came back to go to college or something, so she quit. She is the whitest African you've ever. She's not just lily white. She's skim milk blue white. But Pastor Brett was just telling me he had a disciple. They pastored for two years or so at a church. Through COVID, and then they transitioned out of that. So there was a young man in the church who fell in love with a beautiful Ugandan. He was a Ugandan too, but she was Catholic, and he's Pentecostal. And Pastor Brett said, "Ah, uh, you know, I, I don't know if I would do this if I were you. You guys aren't equally yoked. You might both believe in Jesus. You might both believe in the atoning work. And we're not disparaging Catholics, but, but Pastor Brett said he felt like this was more this young man telling him what he was going to do, not seeking help." I don't even know if he wanted approval. Just this is what I'm going to do. And Pastor Brett said, I don't know if I'd do it. I don't know if I'd do it. Well, they got married anyway. And Pastor Brett, just this past week when I was with him, got a text message from that young man and said, Pastor Brett, you were right. I should have. They've been married two years. I should have listened to you. This is not working. We are not equally yoked. My word's not his, but that was the heart of it. And what can you do? You're bound now. So when it comes to marriage... You got to make sure you're equal, not just in doctrine, equal in vision, equal in discipline. Even in our church, I counsel folks who've been married a long time who say, Pastor, if I had this teaching 30 years ago, my last name might be different. So what does that say for the last 30 years? I wish you young people would listen more closely to me and, and get this little demon out of your ear that I want to control your life because I don't. I'm honestly just trying to prevent a mess for me to clean up later because when you don't listen, you come back and you don't listen the third time five years later. So when I try to help you, it's not to control your life because evidently I can't, don't want to, but I'm trying to help you not have hell on earth in five years. But when your heart gets set like concrete, it's hard as a rock, super, uh, super stupid, and you blame me when your life goes nowhere and the pastor's just trying to control us. I don't know why would he say that. Because I see way more than you do. Because I help people. I, when I counsel, I look at all the marriages around me, all the marriages before me, all the marriages I know that failed, and I see the common ingredients that you're marching towards in defeat. Amen. And the moron listens to the spirit of the world and says, he's just trying to control you. I don't want to. I don't want to control you. Because if I could have controlled you, I'd have done it a long time ago. So, amen. So that's my first little exhortation. Does your husbands, do you eagerly wait to go home? Because if you do, you're not working 60 hours a week. And if you are having to work 60 hours a week, it's begrudgingly because you'd rather be at home with mama. Sometimes we have to work that long, men. And you, you know you can work longer than 30 hours a week, right? some of you need to know that. You don't have to just work minimum wage at 35 hours a week. You can actually do more. But men, do you, are you like the Lord Jesus? Look into the Father. Can I go? Can I go? Can I go now? Can I go? If I work a little bit more tomorrow, can I go home early the next day? Because I want to go home early. Do you look forward to being with your wife and wives? Do you wait at home with bated breath? where's my husband getting home? Oh, my house runs smoother when he's home. My children are better behaved. The house is full of my husband. Or are we just like roommates? He's home. I don't know it. She's here. I don't know it. Because if it doesn't reflect Christ in the church, repent, repent, repent. Amen. So next exhortation, Exodus chapter 16. This is where I want to settle. We did a radio program. Pastor Brett has a radio program in Kampala that airs three times a week. I can't remember. It, it reaches hundreds of thousands of people, uh, maybe even a million. I don't, I don't really know. I remember when he told me the number of people it reached. I was shocked that it was that big of a listening audience. And so he has a couple partners in the States that just buy the airtime for him because they believe so much in it. So I got to, I was honored to be a part of one of the radio programs and he kind of interviewed me. So in being interviewed, and I know he's, he's leading the witness with his questions because he's trying to address cultural kingdom issues in Uganda. We picked up on this concept of destiny. And this is what I picked up on with the radio program because you can see in any poor country or even in poor community, the concept of destiny is important because you want a better life than you currently have. And so we hit upon this concept of uh, excess. There's Brett Scudder texting me. I knew he would because he's streaming. One million in our projected audience. <laughs> Love you, Pastor Brett. One million in his projected audience. That's a pretty good viewing aud- listening audience for his telecast. Amen. So... We hit upon this subject of destiny, and I realized as we, we were answering the questions and kind of teaching to the listening audience, I realized we have the same skewed view of destiny as well. So, what I want to call this message, if you're taking notes, is daily destiny. Daily destiny. Because we think destiny is something that. Dun, 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 dun. Hear ye, hear ye. You have now entered into your best life ever. Proceed and. Enjoy the benefits of destiny. And we love it when we get prophesied that and we fall down and the minister says, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. For what? Now, I love it when the evangelist says that because he knows miracles are about to happen in that moment. But his get ready, get ready, get ready is for the healing line about to happen, not the next six months of your lazy life. Because if you don't do the word, you can get ready, get ready, get ready for more of nothing. Good preaching all right <laughs> Exodus 16 so if we're talking about daily destiny, we need to talk about daily doing the word of God. So the bigger principle I want to present this morning then we're going to back it up with typology and types and shadows is that if if I'm in the will of God today, this is my destiny so 25 years ago, actually, this is pretty funny. I was with Brett. Of course, we spent two weeks driving everywhere together, shared hotel rooms together. He's like, "I hope you don't mind if we share a hotel room." I said, "Brett, we've known each other like almost 30 years. I don't, I don't care." So we were talking about ministry. I said, "Do you remember when we were in college and you had that dream that I would be on Christian television?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "That's a stupid dream, but it turned out to be an accurate one." You know, you have this dream. He had a dream when I was probably 20. He was 21 that he saw me on Christian television. I don't know if that meant TBN, hope not, but uh, just, but we've been on television now just locally and now streaming. Anybody can stream. So it's not like it's that fancy, but for 12 or 13 years, but that was destiny. But we walked that thing out 13 years ago. If I'm in the will of God, then I have a daily destiny. But where we disconnect from reality is we hear the prophetic, and we think destiny is this big thing that one day, boom, boom, destiny. But I would tell you, if you don't walk out daily destiny, you're never going to see anything that you think is bigger and better than where you are today. So there's this lazy welfare lottery mindset to a lot of Pentecostal destiny teaching, and that the Bible says our footsteps are ordered. And that our footsteps are to grow brighter and brighter into the perfect day. We have somehow fallen under this guise that I can sit and do nothing. And one day, a guest minister lay hands on me. And here I am a millionaire with a beautiful wife, three kids serving God and a ministry or a business. It's not how this thing works. That requires no faith. That requires a pipe dream and a lazy bum. And it will never happen. So... If I have a destiny in Christ, it isn't to enter into 20 years from now. It's for me to do the word every single day. And then there are times when the Lord says, come up higher. And the next day you take a little bit bigger step. And then you learn that level, and you walk with daily God and daily destiny. But if all we ever do is the same lazy thing, it's that old adage, you know, lunacy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. If what you and I are doing has produced no change, it might be time to ask somebody successful around you where you stink. Because they can all see it. So, well, you know what? You're this, this, and that. Now go change that, and it'll be better. But we've got to stop expecting different outcomes after we do the same thing over and over again. If it's not working, at least get in the Word. So let's look at this in context with the daily manna from God, all right? Exodus chapter 16, verse 4. Then said the Lord unto Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. The word bread there, it's translated bread in most translations. I will prove to you it shouldn't be bread. It is the Hebrew word lechem. Lechem. There's some phlegm in the middle. Lechem. Lechem means grain or wheat. It also means bread. It, when we say, I will rain bread, we think it's like loaves of bread coming down from heaven or tortillas. You know, be careful. It could cut you. Or, you know. But the Bible goes on to tell it that it was very fine and it was like a powder. And when it, when it warmed up, it melted off. So you know, we're talking about loaves of bread just melting. Where do they go? Where's the residue? Uh, there's something different about it. So we'll use the interpretation of grain, which are, as we know, if you know what grain is? A small pellet that you would grind up and use or make into Sugar Smacks cereal or something. <laughs> I will rain grain from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or no. All right? And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. And Moses and Aaron said unto all the children of Israel, At evening, uh, that then you shall know that the Lord hath brought you out of the land from Egypt. And in the morning, then you shall see the glory of the Lord, for, he, uh, for that he heareth your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we that you murmur against us? And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So I want to say this, this daily bread This is a what we call the daily bread test, or how about we call it the daily destiny test. The timeline here is such that this is two months, 15 days since they left Egypt. They have now been an independent people for two months, 15 days. Fifteen days from this verse, they will be at Mount Sinai. Two weeks. So they get to be proven with a simple commandment for two weeks. Now, we said this in the last couple services at some point. God gave Israel two years of the law. They camped out at Mount Sinai for two years before they were taken to the promised land. Two years and 360 laws. There were still 300 more laws to be given to them or thereabout in Numbers and Deuteronomy. But the point we made was that God gave this people who had just come from slavery, two years and 360 laws, and he expected that to be sufficient to build the faith to take the promised land. They had two years, 300 laws, and they failed. And then we made the point, how many years have we had teaching? How many New Testament epistles? How many New Testament commandments? How many revivals? How many pastors, preachers, prophets, apostles? How many Bible schools? And yet he only gave them two years and 300 laws to pass the test and they failed. And the book of Hebrews warns us that if they died like that, of how much sore punishment shall we be under? The standard is higher for us because we should be more mature. So here's this, what we call the daily bread test, the daily destiny test. They get two weeks to learn it. They have no idea what's going to happen at Zion, Mount Sinai. They got two weeks to learn how to obey God. And this is where we miss it, because we want big destinies, but we don't care about little destinies. We want the wow destiny. We want the YouTube destiny. We want the fame and glory destiny, but we don't want daily destiny. We want something that promotes us into the limelight, but we don't want a daily climb. We want to be put on top of the mountain, and we don't want to climb up the mountain. And you can't be on top of the mountain if you don't daily climb the mountain. And if you don't climb the mountain, ain't nobody's fault but your own. So if we look at this verse four here, we kind of see a ratio because this is how it works. God sends manna. That's what they call it. Manna literally means, what is this? (laughs) What this? That's what manna means. It's a Hebrew word. It's a sentence. What is this? Manna. And that's what it became known as. Every day they'd eat it. What's this? (laughs) And honestly, we laugh about it, but I think it's very fitting. You look at your daily life. What is this? This is God proving you. Amen. What's this? This is God testing you. What's this? This is God seeing if you're going to be faithful at the minimum wage job with, with being a single person. Every day you get up. What's this? God testing you. God sends the manna and then he expects us to do four things. So the ratio is one to four. We're expecting it to be four to one. We do one thing and God does four things. But this, this ratio here is I will rain bread So that's the only thing God does. Then the next four things are our responsibility. Number one, we go. He says, You shall go out. Well, that might be coming to church. You go. Because you got to go to where the manna is. You got to go to where the word's being taught. You got to go to where you're being perfected. You got to go. So your first, our first step with this destiny, this daily destiny is we go. Number two, we gather. You're doing that right now. I look at you writing. Look at you. You're here, so you've fulfilled step one. And now you're gathering. You're taking notes. Amen. Yay! That does you no good. That does you no good. Because we this church has volumes of notebooks full of notes. And we've still washed out perverts and washed out apostates and washed out heretics and washed out drunkards and adulterers. Full libraries full of notes from Pastor Vaughn years before and guest ministers and me. So going and gathering, yay, you're halfway there. You haven't even gone home for breakfast yet. You've done half of it, but the rest of the day still lies ahead. (laughs) The third step is that we return to prepare the food. Now, you have to look at Numbers 11. Uh, Hold your place there. Numbers 11, verse 7 says, And the manna was as coriander seed. That kind of tells us how small it was. So, it's not loaves of bread. And the color thereof is the color of uh, which is a resin. So it's kind of a a yellowish white resin. That's an aromatic resin. And the people, we're in Numbers 11, verse 8, and the people went about and they gathered it and look what they had to do. They ground it in mills. So this thing wasn't bread. It had to be prepared. They ground it in mills. So that's like a stone mill maybe yeah, like a millstone going in circles, or they beat it in a mortar. That's like a giant mortar and pestle. We were just in uh, Pastor Stephen A. Watch's kitchen in Uganda. It uh, had two charcoal ovens in there. It was probably 140 degrees in there. And anytime you go into an African kitchen, you appreciate the American adage, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I was laughing, and he said, Pastor, what are you laughing at? I said, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And he looked at me. He said, "What does that mean?" <laughs> Believe it or not, our kitchens aren't hot. We went to Nigeria the first time. Pastor Okwoko's kitchen was probably 130 degrees. And I walked in there. They were they were on, they didn't they, I didn't belong in the kitchen. They said, "What are you doing in here, Pastor?" I was like, "I'm being cultured. I want to see how you ladies prepare food." This kitchen's 130 degrees. There's charcoal ovens. There's uh, gas ovens, propane or kerosene, kerosene ovens. It's hot. It's hot. Africa's hot. Nigeria is super hot. And Nigerian kitchen is twice as super hot. And so they were in there sweating and fixing uh, fufu for us and stew. And uh, they said, why are you here? I said, I just wanted to see how you cook. They said, and how do you think? And I said, I think it's hot. And they said, so I said, our kitchens aren't hot. And the one lady turned to the other and says, Oh, do you hear this? They have kitchens that are not hot. They couldn't believe me. I said, yeah, our kitchens, they don't get hot. How do they not get hot? I don't know. I'm, I'm never in there. I don't know. I, but I know it's a miracle through air conditioning, gas stoves. So... In uh, Pastor Stephen's uh, kitchen, there was a giant mortar made out of wood and a giant pounder. So this is how they prepared daily what's that. Your daily what's that takes this four-letter cuss word. Work. And if you're not willing to work, be a welfare, socialized, shiftless believer and die a fifth-class destiny. Because though the provision was supernatural... Israel had to obey it Amen. to see the miraculous. Amen. We don't want to do anything and have destiny. <laughs> so they ground it in mills or they beat it in a mortar. And then what they, why would they do that? What, do you, what does that do to a grain? It produces flour. So then what do you do with the flour? It says, and then they would bake it into cakes baked it in pans and made cakes and made uh, cakes of it and tasted the taste of it was as fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. One other place says they would bake it or they would see it, which means they would boil it and make porridge. This are the two things they made with manna, bread and porridge, cream of wheat. So your second step, your first, sorry, your first step was to go. Second step was to gather. Your third step was to go and prepare. I'm trying to give you the formula for daily destiny. Third step was to go and prepare it. Did you know the Bible says from the book of Genesis, if you don't work, neither do you. Welfare is antichrist. It destroys a culture. It destroys a man's dignity. Somebody said, you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. You give a man another fish. You give a man somebody else's fish, he'll vote for you. Give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. The, you know, the proverb used to say, teach him how to fish, he'll eat forever. I like the new addition. Give him another man's fish and he'll vote for you. That's socialism. It's a demon. Even here with the miracle, God supernaturally providing manna every day. Miraculous. They still had to work. They still had to take the miracle provision back to their tent and do the hard work of grinding and milling and then baking or boiling. And so your third step is to return with what you've gathered to prepare it. And then your fourth step is to eat it. And at any step of the way, if you fail, you go hungry. This is daily destiny. We said already manna means What is it? It was a question. And there's usually confusion at the beginning of God's will. There's uncertainty, but the key is to obey and to do it. Obey and to do. Daily manna or daily destiny takes work once it is received. You know, for Pastor Brett to say he had a dream about me when we were in college that I would be on Christian television, that's no guarantee. I would still have to obey God. For me to have a vision or a dream from God to be a missionary still takes work. We want, we see the prophetic destiny as a jackpot. We are hoping to God we can scratch a ticket and all of our worries be taken care of. And that is not biblical. It's a poverty mindset. We're hoping that our ship comes in, but we never sent one out. We're hoping Prince Charming comes along, but all we end up with is a toad we have to do the Word daily to have a destiny. And our life is the fruit of our daily obedience with what is it? The Word of God. It cannot be only going to church. It cannot be only gathering. It cannot be only preparing. It must culminate by the eating, which is the doing of the Word of God. So we're, we're answering this question, how do I fulfill my destiny? Well, if I'm walking with God today, this is my destiny today. Going to Uganda these last two weeks, that was the destiny of God. We prayed. God said, go. We had invitations. Pastor Matt said the Lord spoke to him at the beginning of the year that Pastor Chris would come to Uganda. That's awesome, because God didn't talk to me about it at the beginning of the year. He's too busy focusing on everything here. So Pastor Matt, who we preached for last Saturday, he had a word from the Lord. But that means everything, every step of the way was the destiny for God, which also means coming back home doing laundry, playing with my children, praying with them last night, praying with my wife last night. That's daily destiny too. We want to neglect the daily things and still have some giant, fantastic, dynamic destiny, but it's a pipe dream. It is welfare, socialistic Christianity. If you're not faithful to the daily doing of God's word, you will have nothing to show for your life when you meet God. Amen. Without daily doing, there will be no success in life. Daily doing grows the faith necessary to beat tomorrow's enemies. The daily doing, the daily manna, the daily destiny builds the faith today for tomorrow's enemies. If we're not doing the word of God daily, we won't have the faith we need to accomplish tomorrow's battles. David is that way. (laughs) Driving all over Uganda Uh, We were between Apache and uh, Soroti, and uh, everywhere we drove, you saw children herding their father's cattle. And it was such, it's cows, it's not sheep, but I totally could see biblical culture. David, a little boy, gathering his father's sheep. At one point, we were driving through the middle of nowhere in between two cities, and there was this probably 10-year-old boy with this fierce look on his face because he's swatting at cows as they're crossing the road right in front of us, so we slow down. This, this young boy looked like he'd have killed you. So when we pulled up next to him, Pastor Brett honked the horn and we waved at him, and that boy's fierce countenance went to this big smile to wave at us, but he was so intent on taking care of his father's cows. And I saw, I was like, there's David. That's a young David right there. He knows that if he doesn't take care of those cows, he'll be beat when he gets home. But further down the road, we were driving, and as the Lord is my witness, it was probably a three-year-old boy walking behind his big brother. The three-year-old boy had a stick. He was learning how to herd cattle, and he had a Fisher-Price toy in the other hand. It it touched my heart. I think, what does my boy do? He don't herd cattle. He's almost five. That boy's going nowhere in life. He already got there. I mean, what do you do? There's a four, three, year old little boy running behind his big brother with a stick, swing, swinging at the back end of cows to move them across the road. But, he, you know, Fisher Price toys, whites, with yellow handles, big red buttons. That's what he had in his left hand. Three years old. If we give him a moment, he'd play with this toy. Probably stand up, swat at cows. <laughs> Amen. David tends his father's sheep and his daily battles prepare him for a coming Goliath. His daily destiny helped him fulfill a bigger destiny. His bigger destiny of killing Goliath gave him confidence for military strategies. His military strategies gave him confidence for national leadership. But if he just sat at home under the prophetic and said, One day I'll be king. One day I'll be king. I'm called to the ministry. I'm called to the ministry. I'm called to be an international. I'm called to pastor. And he did nothing with daily manna. By the time he got to the nursing home, they'd say, that's old crazy man Jones right there. Rocking back and forth like Raymond. That de- 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 definitely called the ministry. Definitely called. Def- de- de- definitely going to have a business one day. Definitely definitely going to be rich. It was prophesied when I was told, going to be rich, going to be rich. I don't mean to diminish those that suffer from that genuinely. But there shouldn't be any reason why we are that way because we have a sane mind and we have better teaching than a rock in a chair and keep talking about some ship you never sent out which ain't ever going to come back for you. Amen. Amen. So without daily doing the will and the word of God there is no success. Daily doing grows the faith necessary to beat tomorrow's enemies. But the problem with this story here in the book of Leviticus is that many went out to gather food but they disobeyed the nuances. And these, there weren't a lot of rules. The rules were pretty simple. Gather as much as you, as you can eat, but put it in an omer. That's a vessel of a certain volume. And he that gathered little had no lack. He that gathered much had no leftovers. The rules on the Sabbath day, pre-Sabbath day, were particular. Gather twice as much. Don't save any. Gather twice as much because there won't be any on the Sabbath day. And the, here's the important thing about the Sabbath day. Because we want to get legalistic about it. We want to apologize for for having to work on Sunday. Which, by the way, is not the Jewish Sabbath day. Let me give you the big cultural reset for the Sabbath. You're dealing with the people that have worked seven days a week for 400 years. To tell them to sit still was torturous a culture who doesn't know how to sit still because they have works, you don't give slaves the day off. And you're preparing them to go into a promised land where they're going to be agricultural in mindset and they can't work one day a week, but they're going to have to use that one day a week to trust God to make up the difference. It's a faith test. Jesus said the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And if we want to be legalistic, as some are tracking back towards Sabbath days, the new t- excuse me the, the the law also commands a sabbath year there's a the sabbath was always agricultural and the sabbath year says you don't plow or touch your fields for the whole year but god said on the sixth year i'll give you enough of a bumper crop you'll be able to eat a whole year without touching your field on the sabbath so if we're going to be really legalistic about sunday and i'm all for having a lord's rest i get it honestly this is the day i work the hardest Three services a day, dealing with the administration behind the scenes, having three sermons prepared, and flowing and going and all that. This is my busiest day of the week, so I don't know. Am I a sinner? (laughs) What if we had a bigger church and had to preach two services in the morning and Sunday school and evening? If we're going to really be legalistic about the Sabbath, then we should take a whole year off of a work every seven years. So if you're going to teach your people to have a Sabbath on Sunday, teach them to have a Sabbath work year every seven years. Stay at home and believe God for income on the sixth year to make you through the seventh. Well, that's not that big of a law. Okay, you're Old Testament ignorant. Do you know why they went into slavery for 70 years? Because they neglected the Sabbath year for 70 sevens. For 490 years, they neglected the Sabbath year. Their slavery was based upon how many years they made the land work. That's how serious of a law it was. That's why Babylon was 70 years. And the Bible's very clear on the why. My point is this. You want to trust God. And we want to give him all that is his. These rules were important. And God gave them rules on the Sabbath day. Gather twice as much because tomorrow there won't be any. In the morning, those went out. They couldn't find anything. And God says, how long will these people tempt me? Now, I remind you, they had two weeks Two cycles to practice this. Two weeks to practice the cycle of daily destiny before they came to Mount Sinai. So let's jump over there real quick, and we're going to wrap this up. Exodus 19. In the third month, Exodus 19.1, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. That means the, the land around the base of Mount Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim, and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness. And there Israel camped before the mountain. And Moses went up to God and the Lord called uh, unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagles wings and brought you into myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice, indeed. Now they were given a voice to obey two weeks prior. And we call it the daily manna test, the daily destiny. If you'll obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a New Testament promise that we fulfill because Israel doesn't get to here. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before the faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. It sounds like pastoring. Oh, pastor, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. I trust you, pastor. What's the Lord telling you about me? What's what is God talking to you about me? Yes. What? I can't tell you. Why not? Because you won't listen. We pastors know way more about the people than the people could ever handle. Because if we were to ever slip everything we fully know, you'd either leave or you'd call us controlling or you'd think it was too spooky. But this is how we watch over your soul. We know when you're marching in the wrong direction, but we can't tell you. So we try to construct sermons for you. And you end up hearing them for somebody else. <laughs> we should get into the practice of hearing the message for us. And not for our neighbor. Or, man, I wish my backslidden wife was here. Oh, this is for my aunt in Idaho. If only she would stream. Well, it's not for her, because I don't pastor her. The message is for those seated. Because if it wasn't for you, the Lord would change the message. All right. So... They said, we'll obey. Oh, anything you say, we'll obey. Verse nine. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you not go up into the mount or to touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall be surely put to death. There shall not be a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, then uh, they shall come unto the mount. So here's the scenario. God's getting the people ready to obey a voice to come up and be with God. The only problem is he already gave them a commandment to obey a voice, but it was a daily destiny. This we will equate to the big destiny. My point is this, and we're going to say one or two more things here. If you don't obey daily destiny, you won't have the faith to step into the big destiny. Daily destinies are designed to put character in you and integrity in you and to put uh, confidence and endurance in you. And if you and I neglect daily obedience, daily battles, confronting something, facing our fears, if we won't do that in the day-to-day, if we don't raise our children up little by little today, they'll go nowhere tomorrow. If we husbands don't discipline and, and, and uh, uh, disciple our wives little by little every day, they'll be nothing in 30 years. You men, you are to make your wife your best disciple. Never marry a man who can't disciple you. You don't marry men who can't disciple you. Amen. Amen. I think I told you recently, I had somebody tell me, hey, you know, so-and-so and and -and so-and-so got married. Yeah, man, she has been so good for him. She has really brought him a long way. The testimony is she brought her husband up. And you're laughing because you know how backwards that is. Now, we're good for each other, for sure. But my Bible tells me the head of the home is the man. And if the testimony is she has been really good for him and she has brought him up, the marriage was unsanctioned. Does any woman here want to marry a man you got to nurse the rest of your life? <laughs> do, do you want a man you got to keep blowing in his sails to try to get the family to go anywhere? No, no. If we don't obey the daily destiny, if we're not faithful with the daily manna, we're not going to be prepared for the big thing God has for us. And so he says, get them ready. Let them put on clean clothes. Let them prepare themselves because I'm going to sound a bigger voice and it's going to require two weeks of practice to obey. He gave them two weeks. How many years have we had? He gave these Israelites... Two weeks of manna testing, and that was sufficient in God's sight to come up the mountain. The problem is they failed daily in private. Now, we all fail, but we don't make a lifestyle of it. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto the people, Be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mountain. And the Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses up to the mount, to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. But what was supposed to happen when the trumpet sounded? The people were to go up. And now in my Bible, I've gone through and I've underlined or highlighted yellow the word voice every time it's spoken of in the Hebrew. And between verses 5 and verse 25, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Six times it's mentioned this voice, this voice, this voice. What we see is that in two weeks, the Israelites had failed to fulfill daily destiny and they miss their moment. Amen. They don't go to the top, they never do. We don't know what could have been. We don't know what Israel looking like a nation of priests could have looked like. We don't know what Israel looking like a peculiar people could have been like. We don't know what Israel being a holy nation could have looked like because they did not go to the top of the mount. The voice sounds longer, 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 multiple times. The picture that's painted is it's a trumpet blast that keeps calling out, come up, come up. And it gets louder and louder, and they just keep going further and further and further away until finally the Lord says, now forbid them, because if anybody does, I will wipe them out. That's us playing games with God, missing our boat, and then on the outside of the ark saying, let me in, (laughs) let me in, let me in. And it's too late because it's done. We cannot afford to miss our destiny. But it's, we're proven every day. We are proven by God every day. Will we pray? Will we study our Bible? Will we forgive? Will we be as Christ to our wife? Will we be as the church to our husband? Will we be faithful to God? Some of you have for years chased your own whims. And you have no idea how to serve God. My wife has said you'd make a good Baptist. Because you don't hold our standard. And I don't, that's an insult to Baptists because I know... My best friends are Baptists now. I should say some, a lot of them. So I don't mean to disparage Baptists, but the Baptist doctrine is chase a career, find a Southern Baptist church when you get there. We reject that because it puts money first, which makes you a mammon worshiper. Some of you have spent years doing your own thing and you have no commitment to where God planted you. And so when your destiny would like to come for you, you won't have the faith, the endurance, or the confidence to fulfill it because you've done your own thing. I wouldn't marry somebody who has spent years chasing their dreams. My number one requirement when God spoke to me as a young man about my wife, I said, Father, I want a woman who makes all her decisions based on the will of God. Now, she better be pretty good looking, too. I mean, because I mean, you got to like what you look at in the morning, right? Especially when all the makeup's off. So she got to be pretty. I like her to be a little athletic because I'm not Docile. But my number one requirement is she makes all of her decisions based on the will of God. If I make all my decisions based on the will of God and I marry a woman who's chased her whims and played patty cake, we're, we're going to ruin this thing. If we can figure out the daily destiny, which is not hard. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. Be content. Bloom where you're planted. Forgive. Stretch yourself in your giving. Share your faith. Then when the next assignment comes and it's a little bit of a stretch, it's not so hard. You're used to the voices of God speaking to you with thunders and earthquakes. And God does speak stuff to you that makes your insides quiver. But if you can't obey daily manna, if you can't make it to the house of God, if you can't make your business decisions based on where God has called you and not where money calls you, no, 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 no. Doctrine is not what you think. It's how you live. And I've seen a lot of spirit-filled marriages come together unyoked because they shared the same mental ascent but different lifestyles of heart. You don't marry non-servants. You don't marry people that chase money or careers. Never marry a money chaser. Never marry a career chaser. Never marry someone who's trying to escape the place you're called to. Never marry a person who's trying to escape the place you're called to. There's no destiny in that. Amen. And so what happens, he says, verse 21, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze. They don't want to obey. They just want to stare. They want to spectate. God doesn't call us up to spectate. He calls us up to participate. Lest they gaze and many of them perish. Being a spectator will destroy your life. That is why we preach against the spectator Christian, what we call the peripheral Christian. You can come to this church, be a peripheral saint, and be greatly deceived. God doesn't anoint you to spectate. He anoints you to participate. He anoints you to get plugged in. He anoints you to become a part of the ministry of helps. He anoints you to be part of the soul winning team. That's why we made the challenge this year. If you call this church home, we'll give you at least 10, if not 20 opportunities to go door to door. And I'm expecting all of my leaders, elders, deacons, and wives to go door to door once this year. And if you don't, I will ask a public explanation of you. Why? Well, I didn't have time. Really? How about, here's the excuse. You're fearful and it's not important to you. That's the truth. You're afraid and it's not important. Amen. Now, we have got to come up and the daily destiny stretches us a little bit more every day. God does miracles for us, but we have to take that and do something with it. He gives us daily destiny. He gives us daily bread. He gives us daily assignments. We must obey the day to day because if we don't, our future will be left undone. Don't let them come up here. Verse 22, let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves lest they, the Lord break forth upon them. God doesn't have a problem killing preachers. And Moses said unto the Lord, The people cannot come unto the Mount Sinai, for they thou chargest us, saying, Set boundaries upon it and sanctify it. And so what happens after this is the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. I almost wonder if they had gone up, would the law have been necessary? We, we, there's a giant theological conjectural leap there. Because they would not go up. Chapter 20, verse 1. The law has to come down. Sort that out. There was no mention of any law coming. Come, be up, be in my presence, come to the top. I will make you a holy nation. I will make you royal priests. I will make you peculiar. The disobedience in daily manna resulted in the law coming down. You won't obey the heart of God. He'll give you the letter. So there's a lot to that. We don't have time because we're way over. We're not way over, but we got to still pray. All right. So you feel good? Real quick review. Does your marriage look like the rapture? Not get me out of here, Lord. <laughs> I want the rapture to come, but I look at my wife and say, honey, I want more years together with you. I, we're just getting good at marriage. I mean, the longer you're married, the better your marriage should be. But is there an anticipation of husband and wife coming together? Because if not, one of you is not acting like your typology in the book of Ephesians. So fix it. And number two, our second point today was, if you got nothing else, if you're not, and I, if we're not faithful to Jesus in the little things, there'll be no big things. And though he provides miraculous, we still have to do something with it. God has big expectations and big plans for us, but we have to be faithful with daily manna. I, I like what Brother Hagan used to say, divine healing's wonderful, but how about just divine health? Yes. Daily obedience, I will outperform anybody who needs giant miracles. I'm not looking for the sham wow or the whiz bang. I'm going to daily, little by little, just keep growing brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. I don't want to be a flash in the pan. I just want to grow brighter into the perfect day. God promotes as he sees faithful, and that's what we ought to be as faithful. Amen?